Welcome to the Rural Leaders Podcast, brought to you by Scottish Enterprise. I'm your host, Jane Craigie. Once a month, we will bring you an interview with one of the 650 people strong alumni from the Rural Leadership Programme. Morning, Keisha. Really lovely to speak to you. Hi, Jane. Lovely to see you, even if it's just virtually. I know. We should be doing this over a cup of coffee and a piece of cake, I think. <laughs> I've got my coffee here, so <laughs> if you could send me some cake, though, that would be great. Me too. There's some ginger cake on the desk. Unfortunately, Zoom's not that good that I can post it down the wires to no, you. No, <laughs> no. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, first off, for people that don't know you, Keisha, give us a little bit of a feel for who you are, what you do, what makes you tick so that we've got a picture of, of you and your yellow yellow jumper. In my yellow jumper. My name is Keisha Abis, and if my husband's in the room, it's Keisha Crawford Abis. I am currently sitting at home, um, and out my window I can see our Jacob sheep, which we have a small flock of. We have a small holding, a tiny glen just north of Perth. I am very grateful for the fact that we have super fiber though because that means that four days a week I work as a consultant for the agriculture team for Ricardo PLC part of their energy and environment sector and that's mainly on things like agricultural policy in the European Union or collating research on adaptation in Scotland for Scottish government for example and then my husband and I here at Burmeston we also run a climate and nature friendly uh, meeting space so it's for groups to come and stay. There's no Wi-Fi, there's no TVs, so it's a real opportunity to just reconnect with the natural world that is around everyone and give people that kind of idea of space. And I suppose it's the combination of a couple of things that I'm super interested in. One is food, but not, yes, I love good tasting food, but actually the importance of food to health because of some health issues I've had and also now my kids have got, you know, just how important a role food plays. And then that also has repercussions in terms of economics and poverty and, you know, all sorts of things, especially now that we're in this international food system. And then the other bit of it is mental health. I mean, I've been working in the climate sphere for, I think it's 16 years now. And I've come to this, I suppose, theory, realization, one or the other, that it's not just about reducing greenhouse gases. It's actually about us as individuals and as people becoming happier and more centered in ourselves so that we don't have to find those dopamine causes elsewhere. So like by shopping for random stuff we never need or by going on 50 million holidays that are just actually we're ticking lists rather than being conscious about what we're doing. So that's kind of what Burmiston is about, is about reconnecting. So yeah, I think that's... Oh, and then I suppose I've, the other bit of me is that I've got two kids, uh, two boys, 14 and five. Yeah, so it, life is busy. Yeah, it certainly is. I, I look at what you do and have been doing over recent years and you're a brilliant example of somebody that lives by their mantras and lives by what drives them. You know, everything that you do, you do consciously, whether that's on a personal level, but also the roles that you take on in the wider industry and the impact that that has. So, you know, it's just, it's lovely to see and a fabulous for other rural leaders who are looking to sort of, you know, it's very easy not to be driven by you, your values and your purpose and to be sucked into something that may not be for you. But I think you're a lovely example of somebody who does live by their values, which is really good to see and, and feel every time I'm with you. Well, I think that's also part of the leadership bit, though, is that 
I think when I was certainly when I was growing up and even, you know, early stages in my career, I always thought that being a leader meant that you had to be at the top. Whereas I've become more and more aware of the fact that you can lead from everywhere, you know, from the bottom, the middle, whatever else. And it doesn't have to necessarily, well, it doesn't, definitely doesn't have to be about titles, who's paying you to do what. It can actually just be about leading ideas and it can be in short stints of time. It can be about different things. So I was going to ask you later in the interview about your views of the Rural Leadership Programme and the network, the amazing network that we have um, and the opportunities to connect with like-minded people. Just give me your thoughts on why you think there's so much value that you've gained from it and, and also from the network itself. A bit of a mantra I live by at the moment, because obviously they change, is you don't know what you don't know. And I think having that door, that is opened for you into a space that you have absolutely no idea what's the other side of that door allows you to find out more of those things that you don't know, that you didn't even know you needed to think about. Not just about the outside world, but actually about yourself as well. It's quite hard, but because you are sitting with a group of people who are also agreeing to be vulnerable and to give their utmost, that makes it easier in this kind of journey to take you on. I think realizing that other people who you might have assumed have it all well, you know, they know exactly what they're doing. They've got perfect families. They've got a perfect job. Realizing in that group, no one has a perfect life. Or perfect. It's just, it doesn't exist. We are humans. We can't be perfect. And then regardless of what level they are, I think that is one of the things that has really stuck with me throughout. I mean, because it's been quite a few years now since I did the Rural Leaders Program, but that is one of the things that has really stuck with me. And how do you think that that openness, that receptiveness and, and the, uh, I suppose it, it doesn't matter wherever and whenever you meet a rural leader, it's almost, I've heard many people say, as soon as you know people have been through the same program as you, it kind of removes a layer. How do you think that helps with the conversations that you have with fellow rural leaders? Well, I think, I suppose we all have different masks that we put on and it's one of those masks where you, all of a sudden you don't have to prove to them. You don't have to prove anything. None of us should be proving anything to anybody. <laughs> but that's a really difficult thing to do to complete strangers. But when you get introduced to another rural leader, it's like, okay, well, actually, no, I don't have to pretend. I can just be me. I mean, it's still not easy. You are right that the conversation quite quickly becomes way more comfortable than it might do another other situations. And I suppose it's because of that reciprocal recognition. And Keisha, we saw each other very recently, which was lovely at the Oxford Farming Conference. And for all of us, it's a bit of a shock to the system. So you leave the warmth of your kitchen and your home over Christmas and being with family and friends or having time to yourself, but just it's a, a recharge time. And suddenly you're then in this space with lots of people, lots of ideas, lots of energy, lots of food, lots of drink, but a very human, joyous stimulating experience. You went there with seven other rural, rural leaders and I know Julian Pace and Julia Latta were both there. What was your impression of the conference? How did you enjoy being there with some rural leaders? What was the experience like? I suppose one of the things about going to Oxford is that you are surrounded by this unbelievable architecture 
And I remember someone saying, oh, I feel like I'm just more clever because of what I'm surrounded by. And then someone else went, well, I'm feeling like I'm more stupid because there are all these brilliant minds around us. I know it's got nothing directly linked to the conference, but actually it does. And that just this idea that people have been thinking about some of these issues, even if they're slightly different issues, for hundreds of years. And I was so grateful. I got to stay in Kibble Halls, which was amazing to think, you know, people have been sitting at this table where we had breakfast for ages and having dinner in Christchurch, you know, with massive portraits of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. That idea of history, I think so often we are grasped by what's coming next and the future. And it's all about, you know, progress and whatever that might mean. But remembering that there are ideas that have been thought about for so long and that we need to continue doing that. And then our first uh, event, which was the launch of the uh, Oxford Farming Conference's report, which happened in the Natural History Museum. I mean, again, it was just, I had selfies with a Tyrannosaurus Rex, do you know? That was just <laughs> unbelievable. It, it, was, it was so cool. And again, reminding you that we are part of this much bigger world. It kind of brought everything down because there were some ridiculously impressive people going to the Oxford Farming Conference. So it can be a little bit intimidating, but Henry VIII's probably the most intimidating of all. So you kind of all get humbled a bit, you know, T-Rex and Henry VIII in, in the same kind of context. So I think that was a surprise for me because I wasn't expecting this the architecture and the sites to be contributing to, to what I got out of it. The other bits and pieces, I mean, I, I've been to the real farming conference before <clears throat> and I knew the Oxford Farming Conference was a very different thing but I didn't know how and I was really interested to see how that would work. I did get a lot of inspiration from it about how things are changing and about how many people are wanting things to change in this really positive way. There was a lot less complaining um, and I mean I, I, I say that in the nicest way possible because I mean I've again I've been working you know with farmers for a long time and for a long time, it's been about, oh, you know, goodness, we've, we can't we can't do anything. But this was very much about, okay, well, we have visions, we have a, a, a way forward. And it's not just good for our bank balances, but it's actually good for us as people. You know, because farmers work where they live, their families are so intricately connected to their jobs that it can't just be about, about the financial outcomes. And if they're also living you know, with their environment, then, you know, having that positive relationship with everything around them, I think is just, is fabulous. And, you know, even Suzanne, she was fascinating about just how, how much she understood it more so than, you know, some of the other speakers. And just to see that difference in chat was fabulous. But definitely day two was the highlight for me. The bit about dung beetles was brilliant, you know, bringing it just back down to that dirty soil, the fact that we were all clean, but actually most of the other 364 days of the year have got some soil somewhere, bit under our nails or in our willies or whatever else. That was great. But listening to the gentleman, I think he was from Romania? Bulgaria, yes. Bulgaria, yeah, who was a fruit farmer and now is managing 750 hectares of fruit uh, down in Kent. I was really blown away by how he connected actually to this idea of family, to relationships, this human connection. Again, you know, they've got a successful business, uh, but he talked about the difficulties of, you know, staff and, and so on. But again, he just kept coming back to how he has this English family 
and how it's made such a difference to his community back in Bulgaria. And it was just, it was so positive. And that was, that was lovely. I was surprised consistently um, over the, over the two and two and a half days. And then, of course, it was also bookended by art because we had the physical book club, you know, to begin with, where I'm trying to remember what the books were, field work and rooted. Rooted, yeah. And then finished with a poem. And again, it was just a moment to settle and think completely differently and separately. And that was lovely. And again, I wasn't expecting to be using the word lovely. And I've not even started talking about all of the, you know, the other rural leaders who were there and the people I met. And I am definitely, I mean, I'm so grateful because I was brought as part of the Scottish rural leaders to the conference. But I am definitely planning on doing that every year, maybe trying to mix it up with the RFC as well. Just because after, as you said, all of that kind of downtime at home, Going straight back into my emails, I think would have been too frightening. So having this moment of inspiration and exhaustion because of you know all those people, uh, I think is the best way to start the new year. I think that's one of the most beautiful summaries of Oxford that I've ever heard. I've been involved for a long time, but that's just lovely. You've covered everything that you would hope to get from a conference that leaves you uplifted, humanised and... And, and I suppose centred for the year ahead, which is, you know, which is a, it's a lot to ask when providers are putting on a conference. But if it can achieve that, then I know they'll be absolutely thrilled to hear your reflections. And uh, I was also interested, I know you spoke to my colleague Rebecca about networking and confidence. And I suppose as a, before we started recording this podcast, we talked a little bit about it. And the reflection that I have is that COVID has dented people's appetite and confidence to be out in the world and to mix with people. And for some people, COVID, the the lockdowns were great. People that are a bit more insular and less confident, it was a joyous time for them. For others, it was absolute hell. In the context of what we've been through um, and the highs and lows for us all, how did you enter that First Oxford in three years with 650 people, some intimidating people just because of their status in the world. Young people there, there was a whole cross-section of 18 to 80-year-olds from all sorts of different walks of life. It's quite daunting to go into that environment. How did it make you feel and how did you cope with it? Yeah, I suppose we've all got our lockdown stories, but mine centred very much around my mum who... I was caring for. She had COPD. We didn't even send my younger son to nursery, even when he could go, because of this fear of infection. So we we really pulled away from seeing anyone, from going anywhere socially. You know, even neighbours and that kind of thing. My mum has has since passed away, so that kind of fear, which still exists, which you know, that fear of getting sick, even if it's with the current colds or flu or whatever it is going around. Is still there, but it's not as, I suppose, uppermost. It's definitely a concern. I'm conflicted in that I know I need to meet other people physically to share their energy and to get that inspiration that sometimes you just can't get in a virtual environment. And also just if I want to get on with my job and climb various corporate ladders and all of that kind of stuff, you've got to put yourself out there. So, you know, that's how I kind of framed going to the uh, 
to OFC is that there were going to be this whole room of people that I've never met before and I'm not going to be in an opportunity to meet them. And I just had to find a way <laughs> of dealing with the sensory overload and dealing with what on earth do you wear? Do you know? I mean, I've got my slippers on at the minute. Um, <laughs> trying to work out what type of shoes to put on was hilarious um, because that has all changed as well. Do you know what women are expected to wear in formal environments, formal work environments, I feel has completely changed from pre to post-COVID. But the thing is, is that if you don't do it, you're never going to do it. So, you know, it had to be, it had to be there. But um, I was intimidated and I've I've always been intimidated, actually. I think something in my head, even at agricultural college, you can think of it as quite a closed section of society because loads of people know each other, you know, and have done because there is this connection to the land. So therefore there's a connection to the other people that share the land. And, you know, they went to school together and they do um, pony club and point to pointing and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And that had all blown up even bigger in my mind because of COVID. So I I decided that rather than getting really anxious about it, I was going to turn it into a game. So I was going <laughs> to change the energy around it. And I was standing in the Natural History Museum, actually, with all of these people wondering about, and I couldn't kind of work out how to get into any of their little huddles. And I thought, right, I am going to do this game where I needed to meet someone so that I could tick off each letter of the alphabet according to their first name and their surname. <laughs> so I actually had to tick off each letter twice so that I was meeting more than just 26 people. And what ended up happening was that there are a huge amount of J's and M's in the world. And Jane, there we go, you're your prime example. Um, I ended up running up to the, um, the shadow labor minister for agriculture after the dinner at Christchurch to say... I've got to meet you because your letters, your surname starts with a Z. You're the only one at the whole conference. And it was fascinating because I'd go up to completely random strangers and I'd say, I'm playing this game. And they would go, oh, really? What's the game about? Do you know they were really up for it? And then when they were bored of talking to me, they would say, okay, well, what's the next letter that you need to get on your list? And I said, okay, well, this. And they said, well, look, let, let me introduce you to you ever. So it was like Brilliant. a get-up clause for them as well. Um, what a lovely game. Yeah, it was. It was really nice. But I, I, I now need to come up with something else to do next time. And I'm a bit worried about that. I've got, what, 11 months ahead. Yeah, you have. Well, you might go to some other events before then. Yes. And in terms of your takeaways, so I know you've taken a lot from Oxford. I can tell um, how much of a, a thought-provoking experience it's been. In terms of the future, so back to your day job and, and also your hopes for agriculture and food and our food system. What were your key takeaways and also the positives that you felt Oxford had given you? I suppose uh, one of the things that I'm, I came away with really positive about, but it's about forward thinking, is that the next topic of the Oxford Farmer Conference is diversity. Um, diversity in people, diversity in plants, diversity in crops, diversity in how we think, uh, which I think is a huge break away, certainly from how things were when I was studying agriculture. 20 something years ago up to now because I so firmly believe in that element of diversity I always thought that I was like on the edges but now that it is the conference title it means that I can be more confident about speaking about those things it means that people are more receptive about that and in our work at Ricardo do you know we're 
talking about that all the time, actually, whether it's agroforestry and integrating all sorts of different tree species in livestock farming or in, in crop farming, whether it's trying to find solutions for climates that don't just involve one solution but actually we need multiple solutions that we bring together and that needs diversity of thinking and also diversity of support for the people who are implementing it. I think there's a lot of different angles to that going forward and it'd be fascinating to see the road travelled between now and next January to see how that's even even further integrated. So yeah, I suppose that's my major takeaway as well as wanting to work out how else I can make the best out of the other Scottish rural leaders. Now that I've reminded myself that we're all just people at the end of the day and no one is more important really than anyone else, I'm trying to re-engage with quite a few of those bits and pieces. So Keisha, we've got 11 months until the next Oxford Farming Conference. There's a lot that we're all dealing with. What do you see as the biggest challenges that we need to address over those coming months and also come January 2024? Well, I mean, I'm always going to hark back to this climate issue because I think it has got so many, obviously, long-term issues, but it's also got more really relevant short-term bits and pieces. You know, it's got relevance to what's going on in Ukraine. It's got relevance to... Um, how Europe is going to be responding and changing their agricultural policy, which then will have impacts on how we trade with Europe. I think this kind of separation of ideas about you've either got to be vegan or you've got to be a carnivore, I think really is just unhelpful. And it's got to be, again, what I was just talking about, this diversity of solutions that is inclusive rather than exclusive. Yeah, I mean, we've we've all got a role to play and food is not something that is just about fat, protein and carbohydrates. It is about culture. It's about family. It's about nutrition and it's about our health. That thing about actually if we are healthy people in our bodies and in our minds, then we are better able to to deal with this climate crisis. So I think trying to make those connections that food is not just something that happens in the market but it happens in every single aspect of our lives is something we really need to to get to grips with. And yes, there are a lot of people now in this country who can't necessarily afford to eat. And that is eating anything is going to be their, their mainstay. And we've got to try and work out how in this crisis we can then combine all the other crises without getting unbelievably depressed about it. Because when we get depressed about it, we just, you know, become snails or tortoises tortoise in our shells but actually looking forward to how by dealing with these big crises we can actually create solutions that make a really positive better future just a small job tiny tiny but i think it does it, it, t- it does take us back to what i said in my reflections of you over the many times i've met you is that you are very self-disciplined at being yourself and, and being true to yourself what advice would you give to people that perhaps get, you know, I tend to get swayed by other people, the energies of other people, and it's very hard to stay focused. And I know there's good that comes with that, but, you know, how do you stay grounded and centered and also develop your own self of self? You know, what are your values? What are your beliefs? What advice would you give to people searching for that sort of inner strength, I suppose? 
Oh my goodness, Jane. I think your view of me is very different from my view of me. <laughs> yeah, I think life is a, is a constant learning experience and I'm always looking for the ways to make my DNA embrace the new and the positive. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just having a learning mindset. I don't know. I think there is a lot in that. I, I too, you know, I agree. Listening to different voices, sometimes listening to people that you don't necessarily agree with because it helps to frame your thinking and it makes you more inquisitive to find out more, well, why are they thinking that? And going to events like the Oxford Farming Conference and this over the summer months, we're going to be pulling together, Rebecca and I are going to be working with Julia Latto to pull together some events in the regions. So four different events in the regions. And it would be lovely if as many rural leaders come out to those because it encourages conversations even between people who don't agree. They could be polar opposites, but having those conversations is really important. But also the power in the collective. You know, I think if you gain so much confidence by speaking to somebody who's of a, you know, is a kindred soul. I think there's something in there about tipping points. I think often we talk about tipping points in a negative term. We've got so much methane coming out of the tundra. It's going to cause a tipping point, blah, 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 you know, all awful. But last week there was a publication on positive tipping points and it's about when there's enough mass behind a thought or a technology that all of a sudden it becomes easy to do and yeah I completely agree with you about that collective if you have that collective it does it just becomes easier you don't have to have those consistent microaggressions that you're dealing with you don't have to have that feeling that you have to battle to get because often you know you've just if your kids have been screaming and your dog's been barking and you know, everything else is happening. You just go, oh, I can't be bothered today. But if you have that collective, oh, well, actually, this is easy, then you just keep doing it. So, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's a lovely note to end on. Be bothered about something every day and positively bothered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Keisha. It's been really lovely speaking to you and getting more of an insight into you and what makes you tick. Thank you very much. My absolute pleasure, Jane. I look forward to hearing all of your other bits of the podcast. Thank you. To keep in touch with the Scottish Enterprise Rural Leadership alumni, interviews and insights, sign up to the Rural Anchor Group on LinkedIn and keep up to speed with news via our monthly newsletter. Thanks for listening.